1: John Haven And Al Warren
0: Palm 16.5 AM Sandy. 102.3 FM Riverside.
1: And 1050 AM Palm
0: Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Rose Martino is here. <laughs> I think we got a good nickname for you on the last episode. Which the one short, was that? The short, hairy one, what? Right? Lepo or whatever that name was for the dog. <laughs> for <laughs> the dog. Yeah, dog. yeah. I am short and I am hairy. So. There you go. The short Except on the top one. of my head. <laughs> and that's the important place. Well, yeah, hairy. I know. What happened? Why don't you spend as much time working on that? I don't know. The only person with the full <laughs> head of hair in the room is Mr. <laughs> Gavin Stone. How are you doing, Gavin? Hello there. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, well, you can come back as many times as you. You're always welcome. Oh, thank you. We've got an author returning. He does really good work, uh, True Crime. So he's got a new book out, Grim Paradise. So let's talk to Rod Sadler. Thank you for being here, Rod.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Alan. Uh, I love being on your show. I really do. It's a great time, and I appreciate you having me back.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. When you're doing a true crime crime story like this, this is the um, cold case. It's called the Search for the Mackinac Island Killer. So what what gets you onto a case like this?
1: Uh, That's a great question. Um, A friend of mine, uh, actually a guy that I work with part-time, I was kicking around a couple ideas and he is in, uh, he's a sailor. Um, and it's part of his hobby and he's in, uh, one of the, the big races, uh, here in Michigan. Um, they, there's always the Chicago to Mackinac race and there's the port Huron to Mackinac race. And they're, they're literally back to back, um, a week apart. And, um, He's in the port here on the Mackinac race, and I was kind of kicking around the idea about this one, and he kind of pushed me into it because it's a cold case, and, and he's familiar with Mackinac Island, and, and he just said, hey, I, I think you should do this, and it, it just kind of snowballed from there, and, and there were some odd circumstances um, that kind of pointed me toward a person of the interest that was never looked at by uh, the Michigan State Police And so that's kind of how this all evolved, and I just ran with it.
0: You know, so this case is back in the 1960s. I I like the older crimes myself, and I like doing the research. I like going through the papers, and 60s is great for me because I, you know, like right now I'm doing a case in the 60s, and I, so all I watch is, like, 1960s to tell the truth and Perry and all that so I totally immerse myself but I'm a total nut job so this is why I do that but and how do you do your research?
1: Well, the first thing I try to do and and uh, I'll just preface this by saying that my wife wasn't too happy at tax time when she found mm-hmm. this out but I submitted a Freedom of Information request to the uh, Michigan State Police for the actual police report and crime scene photos. And I got it, uh, but it was, let's just say, very expensive, more expensive than um, I've ever paid before. But it was a 2,000-page police report from 1960. Was it redacted? Yes. Yes, it was redacted. (laughs) And and that's why it costs so much, because they, they go through by hand and redact every name and every address. And so uh, part of my research was to actually have to catalog um, on a 10-page uh, spreadsheet different sections of the police report that I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss in the book. And uh, it, it just became a, a, a very daunting task. And, of course, then I use um, newspapers.com. That's a, a great research tool for me. I actually went to Mackinac Island um on this business trip to actually stay in the same hotel that the victim stayed in, uh, walk to the crime scene, take some photos and measurements, um, and just kind of get a feel for what it was like back then. I, the most important thing about, about Mackinac Island that some people don't know is that in 1898, uh, the, the city council voted to ban horseless carriages And so, therefore, there are no automobiles allowed on Mackinac Island. Transportation is by horse, horse and carriage, uh, bicycle, or by foot. And that's it. And that's the fascinating thing about Mackinac Island. It's really considered... Michigan's crown jewel when it comes to uh, vacation destination.
0: Wow. Were you around and voted for that law at the time?
1: Um, no, but uh, there are several people that would tell you that I probably was. Uh, <laughs> I, actually, it, incidentally, that was the year after my great-great-grandfather, uh, who was the subject of my first book, To Hell I Must Go, uh, was the sheriff here in Ingham County in central Michigan. So um, it was very close to his time just not mine. Well you know from your your, your visit and uh, your research, what was it like
0: living on Mackinac Island in the 60s and what was the culture like and did it contribute to, the, to this case going cold?
1: Yeah it, the, the culture on Mackinac Island is it's, it's a tourist destination. Uh, I think there, today there's probably 600 people that live on Mackinac Island. Um, it's only, uh, eight miles around the, the circumference of the island. So a lot of the, the traffic in the summer, um, thousands and thousands of people come, um, for the touristy things, the, the boat races, the, the, uh, geologic formations around the island, the souvenir shopping, um, just to get away. And, and it was like that back then just the same as it is today. It's really remained unchanged. It's a fascinating place. It really is.
0: So Now, this case is about uh, Frances Lacey, who was found murdered, I believe, right? Who was Frances Lacey? What did you discover about her?
1: Frances Lacey was a a Dearborn widow. She lived in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, just outside of Detroit, and uh, her husband... Believe it or not, it was her third husband. She had had a couple divorces back in the 30s. But her third husband uh, had passed away about three years before this. And so she really had had stayed to herself. Um, she had a daughter and a son. And her daughter and her son-in-law uh, decided to go to Mackinac Island and take her along. Her son-in-law's mother had rented a cabin up uh on the island, and had planned on them staying with her. Frances was really um, a a very loving person, um, but she was kind of hard to get to know, and and that probably, I'm assuming, was a result of her husband's uh, death three years earlier. Um, she kind of stayed to herself; was a, a quiet lady. She took over her husband's business after he passed away. Um, He dealt in uh, real estate and stocks and bonds and things. But uh, she just kind of stayed to herself. But, uh, again, according to her neighbor at the time, uh, she was a very loving person and uh, easy to talk to.
0: You know, in the times, the 50s, it wasn't very good for her to be a divorced woman in those areas. And though her last husband had died, did she have problems in the community?
1: No, I don't think that she did. I never, I never picked up on anything like that. Um, most of the things that, that I picked up on were from um, statements from her daughter to the police and things like that. She'd had some, um, some surgery, and she went into some sort of uh, depression, um, so she took some medication for that. But no, there wasn't really no stigma attached that I that I picked up on uh, in my research about her being divorced.
0: And was she so? Was she back to dating, or did she stay away from that? Was there any boyfriends around at the time?
1: No, she stayed away from dating. Uh, as a matter of fact, she didn't even drink alcohol. Uh, I think her her uh, brother told the police, or maybe it was her son, told the police that. Uh, that he'd only ever seen her drink once, and that was a a glass of wine at his wedding. So she did not date. Um, She wasn't a heavy drinker. She smoked a lot, but, uh, you know, everybody did back then. She really was kind of a loner, if you will.
0: So now when you say that, when she went to the Mackinac Island, so she was really, that was a vacation spot for her then, or I? I'm correct, right?
1: You're correct. Uh, they decided, uh, let's go up to Mackinac Island. It'll be mom's first getaway since dad passed away. Um, it'll be good for her. And she really was looking forward to it. Uh, she really was. And, but the, the thing that, that she did, and, and this was her demise, I guess, if you want to call it that, was she decided not to stay at the cabin with her son-in-law's mother and, and his family she didn't want to put anybody out, so she chose to uh, get a hotel right in town. Um, the cabin that they were staying at was about three miles away.
0: Okay. but so, so she wasn't known in the Mackinac community. like She wasn't a regular there.
1: Oh, no, not at all. Not at all, no. She was one of thousands of tourists uh, on on the race weekends when they have the big yacht races from Chicago to Mackinac and then Port Huron to Mackinac. Um, they shuttle in literally thousands of people to watch the end of those races, and so she was one of uh, one of a, uh, several thousand people.
0: So, so how did the murder happen? Like, what 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 do we know about the murder, or what did you find out about the case?
1: Well, she was on Sunday morning. They were going to return to Dearborn, and uh, the previous evening she'd had dinner with her daughter and son-in-law. And she said she was going to walk out to, uh, an area called British Landing, which is where the, uh, where the cabin was. And it was about three miles from town. It was about, uh, well, you had to take the, uh, the West Lakeshore Road around the the edge of the island. And she said, I'm just going to walk out on Sunday morning. And her daughter was a little concerned. And, and, and so she said, well, if I get tired, she says, I'll grab a, a horse and carriage and, and finish the, the rest of the route that way um, by 11 o'clock she hadn't showed up and they started to get a little bit worried the whole family was there waiting for her and uh, so they notified the state police the state police here in michigan had uh, a trooper assigned to the island and uh, so he took a missing persons report and he was certain that, she, that initially that she was probably just lost on one of the uh, inner trails on the island um, but as the day went on, um, they became more and more concerned because she wasn't showing up. And then the theory was that maybe she had uh, gotten injured somehow or something along those lines. And by 11 o'clock that night, 12 hours after she was supposed to show up, when she didn't, he ended up calling his post commander uh, who lived in St. Ignace, which is uh, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and... It was too late to organize a search party at that time, so uh, the next morning they had 65 people organized to uh, begin a search of the island.
0: Was that, was that island, was there a lot of crime there or a lot of things that go-, go on, especially during the races and all the tourists that are there, or was it a, still a pretty civil area?
1: Oh, it, very, very tame area. Violent crime on Mackinac Island um, today is virtually unheard of and violent crime on Mackinac Island in 1960 was virtually unheard of. It's just a a really, for lack of a better word, cool place to visit, Um, to have to travel in a horse and carriage or on a bicycle. It's quiet. There are certain emergency vehicles on the island. They have a fire department, and the police have a vehicle, and there's an ambulance. And they have, you know, snow removal vehicles. But those are are very seldom seen on the island unless there's some type of an emergency or something. So basically you go there and and you experience this Victorian uh, culture, if you will, of people um, just having to walk and ride horses and things like that. So, no, there was not a lot of crime on Mackinac Island at all.
0: How did they find
1: her? What happened was by the, the fourth day in the search, they still didn't have a, any idea where she was. Well, on the day that she had, was reported missing on that Sunday, there was a couple that was not supposed to be on the island. And by that, I mean they were having an affair, and nobody was supposed to know they were there. And they were riding around the west side of the island, and they came upon a purse. And, of course, nobody knew that Mrs. Lacey was missing at that time. She hadn't even been reported missing. They stopped and, and looked in this purse, and they found a brochure for one of the local hotels, and they found her identification in there. And so they went to the this other hotel, other than the one that she would stayed at, that she had this brochure for, and uh, they said, no, we don't have anybody here by that name. Well this couple was from the Detroit area and they didn't want to spend their day looking for her, so they said, We'll just go back you know, when we go back to Detroit and we'll get a hold of her then and we'll just return her purse to her that way. And so they did. They they took the purse, they returned to Detroit. Well four days later, on a Thursday, they discovered through the news and the media that there was this missing woman on Mackinac Island. Well they realized they had her purse. So they called the state police. The state police were able to identify from them where the purse was found, and they went to that particular area of the island and began to um, kind of hone in on that in the search for her, and they discovered her body there.
0: How did everyone react? Like, how how was it taken by the press and the media at the time?
1: No, the press was was everywhere. They They were hounding the police for you know, any bit of information they could, especially once her body was found. Uh, Then they realized that they had a murder. They were hounding them. They were hounding the family. Uh, You know, the family immediately was suspect in the murder, and so the only information they could get was what they would read in the newspapers. And, And word spread literally across the country because so did the investigation. Uh, you have thousands and thousands of people that are there for a weekend getaway, and then they all leave before the body's even found. So the police, as they started getting tips, they had to track these people down around the country. So it involved several different police agencies. Um... It was just a, a huge, huge investigation.
0: That's. Uh, I, I know you've got a, a, an impressive uh, career yourself with the police, spanning over thirty years. You've been highly decorated, and I'm, I've no doubt that's helped you no end during your your research and investigation of this. Has there been any ways, however, that it, that it has hindered you?
1: Um, I think the only thing that that really hindered me is that the case is so old. I was really thankful that that they had the original police reports and they could uh, scan those for me. They still had the crime scene photos. Uh, I obtained those. Um, And there was actually some people that I talked to that remembered that case um, from 1960. I found them in my research. One of those uh, is a gentleman by the name of Dennis Cawthorn. And Dennis ar- literally arrived on the island about six months before this murder, came there as a young man um, to work for the summer, fell in love with the place, and he's he's literally been on the island ever since then. I talked to some other elderly people around town. Um, they didn't want to be identified, but they did remember what happened, and what they remembered the most was the fear on the island, not necessarily from the tourists but from the locals because – This had never happened before. Nobody ever remembered a a murder on the island. And so the local people were quite fearful.
0: I have no doubt. I I suppose as well, also from your perspective, from going to writing police reports to then writing this as a book, uh, I bet there was uh, quite a few challenges in the different approach between the two.
1: That's, uh, that's an interesting point, too, because I got to thinking about that. And, and really, my books, I, I don't consider myself a good writer, uh, but everybody that reads my books apparently does. And, and I, I guess I do my books in a – I had one uh, review on my last book where the, uh, a former reporter said that I write in what he called a spare style. And it's almost, if you remember, and Alan, I'll throw this back into your lap because you talked about starting to watch shows from the 50s and 60s because you're working on a book about a crime back then, uh, the old Dragnet TV series where uh, where Joe Friday would say, just the facts, ma'am. And that's kind of how my books are laid out. And I get to thinking sometimes maybe they're too much like a police report, but yet I guess that's the way that I write. And it, and it has come in handy. Yeah,
0: sorry about that review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I do the same thing. I'm a, with the true crime books, I'm very formal and it's I I put in all I I dress all around the facts. So everything's all about what you do know and it, it I don't feel comfortable giving too much opinion or feeling or fiction when I'm writing a true story. So sometimes I understand that thought, and I don't think of myself as a good writer either because of that. I think for a reader, they enjoy getting the true story, like the the, the real meat of the story. So I think it's kind of good in that
1: way. I totally agree. Uh, I totally agree. The, most the, the best thing that I get in a review when I read them is that people say that there's an incredible amount of detail. And that's what I like to put in my books is the, the details that the public was never made aware of, uh, little tidbits that, that nobody ever knew. And that, that really became important in this particular book, Grim Paradise, uh, because I've, I've talked to some people, um, a former police chief from Mackinac Island, one of, the, one of the residents up there, and I said, well, who do you think did it? And, and you know, everybody's got a different opinion but nobody knows the details that I know. And those are the details that I put in the book.
0: Right. And that's important. And, and, and also, you know, when you do that, um, because when I do more modern stories like that, where you have people alive and you go to a community and you talk to them, how do you yourself draw the line between what's just gossip and fiction and what's real? Because, you know, whenever I've been into a case like that, you hear all sorts of stuff and I'll have people saying, oh yeah, well, you just don't know the truth, right? And then they tell you some story, but it's, you know, a lot of times it's just derived from kind of gossip. It's from people that didn't like people or uh, Uncle Joe told so-and-so about this and that. Like, how do you, how do you decipher all that yourself?
1: Well, uh, I get it mostly from the police reports, and um, I'll give you an example. I had a, I talked to a, a guy that lives on Mackinac Island, and when he introduced himself, he said, "I consider myself the leading authority on the Lacey homicide," and I thought, "Oh, well, he'd be a, he'll be interesting to talk to." He didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> Absolutely didn't want to talk about it. Well, I can tell you right now that he probably looked through the police reports, uh, at least a box of them that still sat in the Mackinac Island Police Department, not organized, just kind of scanned through them, probably saw a report that mentioned um, some insurance or something. And so he's of the opinion that it was uh, insurance hit. But he doesn't know the things that I know, the things that I read, um, that I intentionally pick up on from, from my law enforcement career. I know what to look for, and that's what I put in the book. And I think I make a very compelling case for uh, at least a couple suspects.
0: Okay, I admit it, I did. <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> broke me down. This leads to an important part. A lot of times people take the uh, armchair detective route, and a lot of people will put down the policing and put down police and it's, you know, it's, it's prime this time, 2023 time to do that. But, um, you're not taking that, that avenue, but yet you're bringing up information and things that maybe the police didn't get at the time. And, and I'm thinking that like me, I have the opinion that you have a lot of people like in law enforcement too, that are just people. They're humans. They, they will make mistakes or they'll miss things. They're doing the best they can. You're not taking the avenue that they shouldn't have been there or they're bad. At least that's what I'm thinking. So let's talk about the policing in this and and how the detectives handled the case.
1: Well, the interesting thing that I put in the the preface to the book is that uh, it's easy to look back um, on a case that's 63 years old and say, wow, they should have done this or they should have done that. They should have looked at this person, or they should have looked at that person. I can tell you that they did, uh, back then in 1960, exactly uh, what should have been done, given the technology and the resources that they had available. Uh, when they realized that they had a homicide at a vacation destination like Mackinac Island, they brought in, like, 25 troopers and detectives from around the entire state to work on this case. They talked uh, ad nauseum to locals, to uh, transient people, to uh, tourists. Um, They talked to uh, police agencies around the country saying, hey, so-and-so was here on the island, can you interview him for us? Um, They did exactly what they, they should have done. But yet today, while it would be done the same way in that you would go out and you'd take crime scene photos and measurements and you'd talk to people, things would still be done differently today because autopsy protocols have changed. We now have DNA technology available. We now have the ability to uh, to profile uh, serial killers, things like that. So while you would have done the same thing today that you did in 1960, there's also other avenues available that would have been much more helpful. And I think that it could still contribute to uh, at least either implicating or clearing two people that I think uh, could have been involved in this particular murder. Wow. With that in mind, with the difference between modern policing and and, and policing back then, do you think there is anything that would have been pivotal that you could have taken from today's policing
0: and, uh, and used it back then that would have made the outcome be completely different?
1: Well, that's a that's a really tough question um, because the theory is is that the killer obviously, since her body wasn't found until four days after uh, she was reported missing, the killer had every opportunity to escape, and and clearly he did. Left the island. I don't think that there's anything available. I I, I take that back. I would say if if they'd have had DNA back then, they certainly could have created a DNA profile of the killer based on some of the forensic evidence that was found. And given that, I think that they could have solved this particular case. I don't think criminal profiling uh, would have helped back then. I just think there was there was too many people on the island. I really do.
0: Were there any other murders in, in Michigan or the surrounding area that matched the M.O. of, of that killing?
1: Well, yes, uh, not at that particular time that I'm aware of though. The person that, the person that I name as uh, a person of interest in this particular murder was involved in another murder in the early 80s in mid-Michigan and the victim was a 16-year-old girl and her body was found uh, west of uh, Cadillac, which is another uh, vacation uh, destination in northern Michigan. And that uh, 16-year-old girl uh, died the same way that uh, Francis Lacey did.
0: When you put together this case, like when, you're, when you look at this, was there any evidence that they can pull back on? Did they collect anything that they can get a DNA from or any sort of, was there evidence left that they still have?
1: Well, there was evidence left. Um, the question begs whether or not they still have it. And really, that's the crux of this case. If that evidence can be located, then I believe they could create a DNA profile of the killer. Without getting into specifics about what was found, if that evidence could be located, yes, I would say yes, absolutely. Um, The question is, uh, from all indications in my research, um, it has either been uh, lost, misplaced, or destroyed and, and those are the exact words uh, used by a detective in an email that I was able to get a copy of.
0: So, is, was that common practice? Do they do they keep cases that old, or do they just start destroying it or disposing of it? Is that common?
1: Oh no, no. I think anytime you have an unsolved homicide, everybody knows that you you hang on to that evidence basically forever until the case is solved. Uh, I do um, kind of mention another case. It was a murder in the 60s, uh, the mid-60s. It's not related to the, the Lacey homicide at all, but it was a murder of a, of a Canadian man. His body was found uh, up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And in the mid-90s, a state police detective uh, had some leads and was going to reopen that investigation, and all the evidence had been destroyed. And it was his opinion that administrators want to clear out evidence that's just sitting around collecting dust while detectives say, no, this is stuff you hold on to forever until this case is solved. And typically in a cold case, you would find that evidence is held on to. I'm not saying that this evidence doesn't exist uh, by any means because it could be sitting in a box up in the uh, state police upper peninsula district headquarters evidence room somewhere. I just think that it takes, uh, it takes time to look for it. And in today's society with manpower shortages, um, and budget cuts and things like that, that they don't have the time and they don't want to commit the effort to search for this stuff, uh, because they're too busy.
0: Right. And it's not it's they have to take care of the the new cases first.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They have cases coming in and every day. Who are
0: you putting the uh as person of interest or persons of interest that you find um probably probably more than likely in your opinion had something to do with the case?
1: Well, there's there's one gentleman um and, and I'm not going to mention his name here um I'm going to make people go out and buy the book. (laughs) I picked up on it halfway through, and this is something that that people don't, when they read the book, they may even miss this. But there was one suspect uh, who'd been picked up for some breaking and enterings uh, up in uh, the middle part of the state. And uh, he said to the detectives during his interview, and this was in 1962, I believe. And he said to the detective, no, this was in 1960. He said that he'd been on Mackinac Island, and the detective knew about the murder. And so he contacted uh, the, the post uh, up in St. Ignace, and they sent a detective to interview this guy. And, he's, and they said to him, uh, so you were on Mackinac Island? And he goes, oh, no, I didn't say that. I, I must have misspoke myself. I was on Fox Island. No, no, I wasn't on Mackinac Island. Well, based on some of the forensic evidence that had been collected in the Lacey homicide, they asked him to submit some hair samples. And when they did that, the uh, the lab technician that did the analysis said that the hairs or the, the forensic evidence that he submitted matched uh, some of the forensic evidence taken off the body of Mrs. Lacey. And so you have that. You have this connection where the guy says, oh, no, I didn't say I was on Mackinac Island, yet he matches with some of the forensic evidence. So, honestly, I think that he is a legitimate suspect in this because there was nothing else in the reports that said they did any more follow-up other than giving him a polygraph exam that they said he passed. The second suspect, and it's a long, convoluted story about how I came across this guy's name, but... uh, I'll tell you his name. It's Gerald Weingart, Wingart. And Gerald Wingart arrested for the very first time in 1961, uh, almost exactly a year after the Lacey homicide. He was arrested in Ann Arbor for uh, the rape of a blind woman and uh, the armed robbery of her boyfriend. And he went to prison for that. In the mid-'80s, he kidnapped a 16-year-old girl that I, I mentioned before. Uh, That girl was killed in the same manner that Mrs. Lacey was. And he was actually charged with that murder. And there was a discrepancy between some witness statements and the search warrant that was used to collect evidence from his van. And so that case was thrown out and is still to this day considered unsolved. And then he was involved in another murder uh, in the early 70s that went cold. And he was convicted in 2001 of that murder. And so he's clearly a, a serial killer. And he was sentenced to prison for that murder from 1973. I think he's a legitimate suspect because there's certain traits that he has that match some of the physical evidence um, in the Lacey homicide. And uh, there, he's clearly aware and familiar with northern Michigan Uh, based on some newspaper articles that I found about him. And so I think that that he's a legitimate suspect, or at the very least a person of interest. And everything that I collected in this particular uh, book was turned over to the uh, Michigan State Police in, in the hopes that they would look at him as a suspect in it.
0: Did you get to meet either one of the suspects?
1: No, I didn't. I did not. However, I will tell you that the second suspect uh, that I just gave you the big drawn-out story about, his defense attorney is uh, a dear friend of mine. Unfortunately, uh, he was not able to provide me with any information about his former client because of the attorney-client privilege. So anything that I dug up on this guy, it was on my own.
0: I guess with the book coming out, do you ever worry about any sort of response from someone like that?
1: It crossed my mind. I'll tell you that the the second suspect, well, the first suspect is dead. He died in the mid-2000s. The second suspect that I mentioned, uh, he passed away last year and is still in prison for that 1973 murder. Uh, I had thought about, you know, well, what if he gets word about this? And then I thought, who cares? I I don't care. I really don't. You know, in my previous book, Killing Women, that that we discussed on, on another show, uh, I had gotten letters from Don Miller, the serial killer, um, in that particular book. Now, I will say that my wife wasn't too happy about that.
0: <laughs> you're, really, you're really upsetting the wife here. A few yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like,
0: you gotta, yeah you gotta, maybe
1: I should find a new hobby, huh? Yeah,
0: yeah, you gotta you got to take your time on some of these. Only so many upsets in a year, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You yeah. don't over, overdo it there, you know. Well, the opinion yeah. of approaching true crime is just growing by the minute. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is. The big picture of this, when you look at this, uh, when someone picks up this book, when they pick up Grim Paradise, what is it you hope they take away from it?
1: I want them to know, first of all, it, it's a piece of, of Michigan history that a lot of people think is folklore or um it, they didn't know about it and i want people to know about it because there's still a killer out there could still be a killer out there and they could be a part of solving this uh, i i quote um john douglas a former fbi profiler in the book where he says basically he says uh you know we do the best we can and when we can't solve it we turn to the public maybe there's there's uh maybe there's something in the book That someone will read and go, hey, I think I've got some information that might help solve this. Maybe it was somebody's uncle that that quietly said, hey, remember Mrs. Lacey? I'm the one that killed her. Maybe uh, Mrs. Lacey had some missing property. Uh, It's listed in the book. Maybe they'll read the book and go, hey, I've got one of those. Let me go take a look at it. Hey, look, the serial number matches. I got this from my distant cousin. You know that... There's so many possibilities, and that's what I want people to take away from it, that they could be the key to solving the Mackinac Island murder.
0: When I approach um, different detectives on old cases that haven't been solved and, you know, going through evidence and stuff, there's, sometimes there can be a little bit of a, let's say, uh, I don't want to say fight, but they're not too eager to get into, into it. How is it for you being an ex-cop? I think in general right now with podcasts and a lot of the stuff out there, there's there's this real, even the TV shows, there's a real common thread of people on these shows going, well, the cops did a bad job or they didn't do this or didn't do that. So there's kind of, they they must feel a little bit like scrutinized over their work. And that must be kind of a hard thing to deal with all the time. And so, did you sort of notice any of that?
1: Not really. Uh, when I spoke with the uh, cold case detective uh, about the information that I that I had developed in in the Lacey homicide, he was very friendly, and he said, "If you're ever up here, stop in for a cup of coffee." Uh, he never offered any information back. It was a it was a one way exchange and that was me giving him information. The Michigan State Police uh, has a policy, and, and understandable, it's the same policy that we had when I was in law enforcement, is that you don't talk about open cases to the public, and, and that's why the exchange was one way. I talked with another uh, lab technician uh, from the crime lab, and uh, he said he said, before you say anything, he said, just, I want you to know that I'm not going to be able to help you out because we're not, we have a very strict policy uh, because it's still considered an open case that we can't talk about it. And I said, you know what, I understand completely. And so uh, I wasn't able to garner any information from him. On the flip side of that, I, I'll tell you that I'm working on uh, my next book. And when you talk to retired cops, man, Uh, They are just a wonderful, wonderful resource. Um, And without going into a lot of detail about my next book, uh, I have gotten absolute 100% cooperation from every retired cop I've talked to about this particular case. uh, Not the Lacey Homicide, but my next book. And they'll share anything and everything they can.
0: Let's talk about your social media and let's talk about how people find ROG besides going to the bars, where would they find you?
1: <laughs> uh, well, they can find me at rodsadler.com, and they can actually, uh, the book launches in a week, but right now they can uh, pre-order a digital copy for your ebook at a substantially reduced rate, and they can pre-order the book actually from me on my website. Uh, it will launch next week. And it'll be on uh, all my social media pages. I'm on X, uh, which used to be Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I've got a little uh, stuff going on TikTok. I'm trying to get some videos up there. Um, I'm on Facebook as Rod Sadler Author. That's where I do uh, the majority of my social media. And I'm also on LinkedIn. So they can find me at a number of social media spots, and and I try to include any news about uh, my upcoming books on all of those different platforms.
0: Wow. Right. Well, we'll have all that up on our website as well so people can find you with one click, but I've got to go see Rod Sadler on TikTok.
1: Oh, no. yeah. Well, I haven't really mastered the whole uh, video thing, so uh, it, there's not much there, but uh, it's at least a reminder that, hey, there's a new book coming out and, and you might yeah. enjoy it.
0: Well, you got to start slow, but, you know, get the dogs out there and go dancing, you know, and stuff like that, you know.
1: Absolutely, yeah
0: yeah. Get some fun, I want to see some action
1: Absolutely
0: Well, anyway. <laughs> It's been a real pleasure having you on And of course now the book Grim Paradise And it's the cold case search For the Mackinac Island Killer And it's Mr. Rod Sadler who wrote it And our guest, so thank you for being on
1: the show Gentlemen, thank you so much uh, And I will uh, Stay in touch and let you know When my next book comes out Thank you Thanks Rod